Can you hear me? Yes? Good? Um, pastor Nick, uh, my name is Lloyd Biddle. I'm the associate pastor at, at High Point Church, responsible for things like small groups and deacons and uh, developmental ministries. And uh, it's a joy to be before you this morning. Uh, pastor Nick has asked me to con continue, but Nick doesn't like that. He, Nick. Nick has said uh, that, uh, asked me to continue in um, the Psalm series with Psalm 2. And so that's what we're going to start with. I have some dear friends of mine who made it from Kenosha that I want to recognize. Gary and Lazandra Martin, why don't you raise your hands, Gary? That's Gary and Lazandra. Good friends of mine. Thanks for coming down uh, from Kenosha or coming up from Kenosha to visit with us today. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 2. And we will read Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Dear Lord, we are uh, thankful uh, to be able to come and to consider what you are saying uh, to us, indeed what you are saying to the world through uh, Psalm 2, that you are uh, Lord in heaven and your son reigns on earth. And to that, we just uh, want to um, walk in line with that. We want to glory in that. We want to thank you for all that you are doing in, in our lives. And we want to take your gospel to the ends of the earth. So bless us as we explore this, this great king and his great invitation to all of us to take refuge in him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There is evidence of chaos and calamity all across the world today. From the unrest in Egypt to Syria to natural disasters in places like Boulder, Colorado. There is violence and murder all around. In fact, in my hometown of Chicago, people are so numb to the violence that takes place weekend after weekend that this Thursday when 13 uh, young men who were playing basketball on the south side of, of town were shot, it barely made a blip in the national news. And now my hometown is nicknamed Chirac. Hundreds and thousands of lives are in peril. And beyond this violence and natural disaster, there is a major cultural war going on in America. 
It is a thought war for the hearts and minds of the American people. And because of the global influence of our nation on religion and politics and economics and culture and so forth, this war has international implications. Now, some of the hotly contested issues being debated are the following. What, if any, protections should be afforded unborn life? What should constitute a legal marriage? Do we need national health care? And what, if any, restrictions should we place on private gun ownership? These issues are being debated and sorted out in our homes and classrooms, in courts and in Congress, and yes, even in our churches. The issues are important because they speak to our societal values. They answer significant questions like, what is good and what is evil? What is moral and what is amoral? What is legal and what is illegal? And most important, in terms of the relationship between man and his creator, who is servant and who is king? Psalms 2 tells us very clearly that there is a king who has final authority over all the affairs of man. It is the king that God has chosen, that he has given authority to reign over all the nations. This morning, I want to discuss this anointed king and the challengers to his rule. As we look at Psalm 2, and as we seek to interpret it, I want to give you three key things um, that are helpful in unpacking Psalm 3, Psalm 2. The first one is the use of synonymous parallelism. We've got to remember that this is a song, and poetic devices are, are used throughout. And the, the, this particular device helps tell us what the major themes of the psalm are. So let's quickly look through what the themes are. Verse 1 says, the nations conspire and the people's plot. The kings take their stand and the rulers gather together. So we see that the Lord has uh, enemies who have come together against him. Verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The people recognize that they are servants but they despise the lordship of God. They despise the reign of the king. Verse 4, but God is unconcerned. He laughs and scoffs at the kings of the earth. We believe that it's God who created all beings. It's in him we move and live and breathe and have our being. He allows us to, to live by his grace and by his power. So he laughs when his enemies conspire against him. In his anger, the Lord rebukes and terrifies them. Here's the first sense where we have a contrast in parallelism. This would be an antithetical parallelism. You are my son, and I have become your father. God will make the nations the son's inheritance. There is a king who will rule over all of the nations. They will be his inheritance. All the ends of the earth will be his possession. This anointed son will have power. He will rule them and he will dash them. He will destroy his enemies. Therefore, he says, you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. As I look at this parallelism, I think the, the, the body of the sermon really breaks out naturally into these three components from what we have just looked at. And here are the three. In verse 4 through 9, the nations have a king. God has put an, his anointed son on the throne. The nations have a king. The second point is the nations hate their king. They are conspiring against his rule. And the third point is the nations need their king. So the first thing is we want to look at the parallelism and it helps us understand the key themes of the psalm. The second point that we need to pay attention to to understand this psalm is who is this anointed son? Who is this anointed son? Now, Psalms 2 is a psalm of David. It is called a messianic psalm. And the reason it is called messianic is when you turn to the New Testament and you look at the writers and the apostles, they use Psalm 2 to speak of the great king, the fulfillment that the great king, the, the son of David and the son of God that he has come. And here's an example of how Psalm 2 is used in the New Testament. It's here in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. The context is this. Peter has preached his first sermon. Thousands have, have come to the faith. He and John have, have gone to the temple, and they have healed the man who was crippled from birth. The temple guard has taken note. The, the leaders of the ruling council have said, hey, we need to pull these guys aside and, and order them to stop preaching in this man's name. So this is the, the particular situation. They, they bring them there, and they charge Peter and John to, to stop preaching in, in Jesus' name. And he says, you guys, you be the judge, whether we should obey man or God. We cannot help but preach on Jesus Christ, the Savior who has come and who, who has entered into the world. Now, there's commotion all in Jerusalem. People know that a great miracle has happened. They see the power of God being released. So the rulers know that they don't have the, it's not politically expedient to punish these men. So they, they kind of rebuke them and send them on their way. And this is where this picks up. Acts 4, verses 23 through 27. Who is this, this anointed son? Who is this king? On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, who wrote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Here's that quote. And the people's plot, plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's how they interpret the psalm. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, with the Romans and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. He is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is the one who, will, who reigns over the entire uh, landscape. This is Christ. They did what your power and what your will had decided before, beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
They recognized that this Christ was now in charge, that a new kingdom had been ushered in, and they didn't answer any longer as final authorities to the, to the, the, the rulers of earth. They answered to the great king in heaven. And they moved the gospel forward from that movement, from that preaching, from the movement of the Holy Spirit. We are all gathered here today. Those who who confess Christ as Lord gather here today as his witnesses. So the first point is the follow the parallelism and it will tell you the themes. The second point is know who this king is. This is Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Now, that particular psalm, Psalm 2, is also appropriate for David and his descendants. It is a great coronation psalm that they could use at their installation. But its fulfillment, its prophetic fulfillment is uh, completed in Jesus Christ. That's the second point. The third thing that you want to pay attention to as you interpret this psalm is God's emotion. God is a spiritual being. And he emotes like we emote. And in this psalm, his emotion is very important. But in Psalm 37 and 27, 35 and 27, we recognize that the Lord delights in his servants. In Psalm 111 and 4, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Amen? Amen. And so we recognize those of us who belong to God that when we struggle and fail, we can get up and repent. And this compassionate God is not there to punish us, but to encourage us to move forward in him. He is gracious and compassionate, slow in anger, especially towards his children. And the, the third point is he's grieved. When we willingly sin against him, as this, in this particular example, it is Saul and how he ignored uh, Samuel's instructions. The Lord is grieved by the things that we do. But in Psalm 2, the anger that's prominent is, the, the emotion that's prominent is anger. God is anger, angry, and in verse 11, we see that the son is angry. And so what I want to talk to you about as I close the sermon is I want to suggest that this anger is justified. It it makes sense when you take into account who God is and who his son is in their rule on earth. So these are the three things that you got to pay attention to, in in my opinion, as you interpret this song. The parallelism to recognize that Jesus Christ is the anointed one and to pay attention to the the emotion that God um, sets forth. All right, I want to jump now into the body of the sermon. My first point is that the nations indeed have a king. They have the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. In Christ, all that the previous kings were supposed to be, in terms of obedient to the Lord, in terms of following his commands and his decrees, in terms of their holiness, in terms of actually serving the people, being a shepherd, uh, in, in terms of justice, providing justice throughout the land, that there would be no corruption in the land. All that the kings of, of Israel, all that the, the kings of Judah were supposed to be is fulfilled in this great king, Jesus Christ. Who, who is perfect in his holiness and righteousness. Uh, it's interesting how fascinating we are 
with the subject of, of kings. Many, many stories, many books have been written on kings, many stories told about kings, both good and evil. One of my favorite stories is The Lion King. Um, the Lion King, you remember, is a story of King Mufasa and his son Simba. Um, they are, King Mufasa is the king of the pride lands, and all of the animals in Africa are under his reign. What's interesting about King Mufasa's reign is that the pride lands flourish under his rulership. There's plenty of food and water. There, there's no injustice in the land. It's ordered perfectly. The pride lands will flourish and the people rejoice. Uh, that concept comes out of the scripture, right? That when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. We look for that for that time. And there was only really one person, though, that took exception to the rule of this righteous king. It was his younger brother, Scar. Scar was heir to the throne until Simba was born. And he always said his, in his heart, one day I will rule. And so when Simba came, he was a bit discouraged, and then he hatched the plot. He got with the hyenas, came and conspired and said, we will kill Mufasa, we will kill Simba, and I will reign, and you will be my main subjects. And so they conspired together. They, they created a, a stampede of wildebeest, made sure that Simba was in harm's way. Mufasa runs to the scene to save his young son, the heir, the rightful heir to the throne. He takes him to safety and he scatters to, to the edge to try to get out of harm's way. He climbs up a wall and there's Scar looking down upon him. He looks at his brother Scar, reaches out his hand, you know, pull me up, pull me out of harm's way. But, in, but Scar, in his desire to take over the kingdom, he pushes him back down into the, the, into the ground, and the wildebeest trample him, and he dies. Simba doesn't see the scene. Scar grabs Simba, takes him to see his dead father, and says, now look what you have done. By, 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 by being in places you weren't supposed to be, you've caused this stampede that ultimately ended up in your father's death. If I were you, I would flee. I would, I'd never come back. And Sim, the young Simba, a young cub, runs off. Scar goes to the hyenas and he says, listen, go take care of Simba. So they run right behind him with the intent of killing the young heir. But he escapes away into the desert and runs into Timon and Pumbaa, right? The warthog and the meerkat. And they teach, they teach symbol about their no worries way of life. Listen, you know, let's come. We don't have to worry about hunting and killing animals. Let's just, we'll eat wild honey, right? We'll just have a, a, a no worries kind of life. And it's kind of fun and Simba grows to maturity. But by um, accident, while he's in the jungle, away from his country, and while Scar has taken over the Pride Lands and run the, the place amok, and where it used to flourish and there was prosperity, now there's starvation and poverty, and the, and the people cry out because of the ungodly. They cry out for a savior. He runs into Nala, and Nala says, you need to, young Simba, you've got to come back and take over the throne. You are a king. There's a king in you. Amen. And so after a while, he recognizes that this indeed 
he does need to come back to the Pride Lands. He comes back with Nala and Pumbaa as his army and Timon. They overpower Scar, and in the course of that conflict, he finds out that it was indeed Scar who conspired and killed his, his father. And they overpower Scar, take over the kingdom. And this is the interesting thing. When the rightful king was put back in place to, to lead the pride nation, in short order, the nation was restored to its prosperity and flourishing. Amen. When the rightful king who knows justice, who seeks mercy, who recognizes that his role is to serve man and not be served, when that king gets on the throne, the people rejoice. That's the kind of king that Jesus Christ is in spades. When we submit to his word, when we su submit to his rule, it's for our own good. When I follow the scriptures and educate my children according to the scriptures, I see the benefit in real time. At work, when I submit to what the scripture says in terms of how I should treat the employees and how I should so treat Pastor Nick, there's peace in the church. There's, there's flourishing in the church. Relationships are healthy and we can move forward and accomplish the agenda that God has accomplished. I'm trying to tell you that this king has power and that his rules are for our good. Amen. So the first point was that the nations had a king. But the second point is that the nations hated their king. They had a king. He was a wonderful king, a great king, ruled for the benefit of the people. But the nations had hated their king. Primarily comes down to <clears throat> they want to rule. There is a poem <coughs> written in the late 1900s by um, uh, a, um, a poet, William Ernest Henley. It's a very famous poem. The poem is entitled Invictus. It's a Latin term meaning unconquerable. Now, Henley was a great poet, but he had a, a bit of a difficulty in his life. He suffered greatly from tuberculosis, and it was in the bone of his leg, and ultimately it caused his leg to be amputated. And he wrote this poem to comfort himself. It was his response to the circumstances of life. I want to read it to you this morning. Invictus, in unconquerable. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit, from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds me, finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how changed, char, ch uh, changed with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This principle that I am my own, I am the master of my own fate, I am the captain of my own soul. Isn't this the cry of every human heart 
Isn't this the cry of our children as we raise them and we run into rebellion out of nowhere? Leave me alone. I want to do it my way. And as we get older, it manifests itself somewhat differently, but it's yet and still the same cry. I, I, I want to figure this out. I want to go my direction. I, I want to do it my way. And isn't this how Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden? When God told them that they could eat from any tree except the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how did, the, how did Satan tempt them? He said to them, if you eat from this tree, you will be like God. It's like Satan said this, why would you want God to rule over you when you could rule over yourself? Every tyrant in history, every bankrupt leader, every local politician that runs into corruption, ultimately this is the desperate plea that ends them in that, that place. And I would hold that if we were honest about it, we've all been in that place at one time or another where we have railed against the God of the Bible and suggested that things ought to be done our way. The Christian rebels against God when he says he belongs to Christ, but his actions say otherwise. He says he's a Christian, but in, in duty and in practice, he lives as if he doesn't know him. And therefore, the, our family sometimes, the result of this can be that they implode at the same rate as those who confess Christ. The moralist rebels against God when he says in his, in his heart, I don't need God to be decent, to be moral, to be productive in society. Look at these Christians. In most respects, I'm even holier and lead a more righteous life than them. Why do I need God is what the moralist says. And the skeptic looks on scripture and they say that his claims, they just can't be proven. The skeptic requires solid, scientific uh, evidence before they can believe in any God, but especially a God who claims that he can raise, was raised from the dead. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize in our life and times that there is a lot of rebellion against the God of the Bible. Nonetheless, we cannot deny the fact that the majority of the people in the world believe in some God or another. And I think it's because of this. Our hearts yearn, our very existence yearns for a righteous king, for an authority that will set things right. Here in Madison, back in Chicago, in my hometown, and in Syria, in Egypt, our hearts yearn for a king who is true and good and right, who will make judgments that will allow us to live in peace and prosperity. All of us yearn for that kind of king. And that brings me to my last point of this morning's sermon. We need a king. That's what verses 10 through 12 say. That's the point that David makes as he concludes the, the psalm. We need a king that is powerful enough to create order out of chaos. We need a king who can create peace out of the violence that it pervades our life and times. We need to kiss the sun. Um, about four or five years ago, 
um, my son, uh, my wife annually, typically, sings at the Martin Luther King program at the Capitol. And for really, Madison, you may or may not know this, has the oldest Martin Luther King celebration in, in the U.S. They've been doing it for a, a long time. And one of the traditions they have is they have a young student come and give the I Have a Dream speech. So one particular year, must have been four years ago, uh, on very short notice, Deborah asked my son, Jared, who at the time was maybe, I don't know, sixth grade, perhaps, to, to give this speech. And he was a little hesitant, but uh, Deborah is persistent. If any of you know her, she's pretty stubborn-minded. And she, and she kept at him, and he said, you know what, I'll do it, I'll do it. And uh, so at the Capitol, in front of an audience of three or four hundred with dignitaries, governors and mayors, dignitaries, Jared gives this speech. And it's kind of cool because it made the front page story of the, of the newspaper here in town. But he, when he was finished, he was exhausted and really challenged him to his core. And he melted in my arms when he came to sit down after he gave the speech. And I was so proud of him that, that he would honor Dr. King and that he would um, obey his mom and step forward like that. You see, I'm trying to, like you who have kids, I'm trying to raise my kids to go out and be courage, make, make steps of courage in Christ's name. I want them to step out and, and do good things. And so I just uh, was trying to encourage him, and he was in tears. So I just stooped down, and somebody caught me in this picture, just kissing him on his head. I had so much respect for him for stepping out like this. To a much greater degree, and for much greater reasons, the father honors and loves his son. And even though his love for his son is infinite, he chose to give his son his life away so that you and I can be reconciled to the king. When I think of the compassion of Christ and how it fails not, I think of the scene of the cross. I think of Jesus' last days when he told Peter that he would deny him three times, pretty much at the communion meal. And I think of how Judas went and, and basically betrayed him for 20 pieces of silver. How he was turned over to the elders and uh, the, the prison guard and they all came to Gethsemane and took him. And, and Jesus came uh, without a fight, not a problem at all. And his, his very best friends deserted him uh, with the exception of Peter and I want to say John, they kind of followed behind. Peter got to the scene, which was the house of the high priest. He was in the courtyard, and people recognized him. They said, you were with that Jesus. You were a Galilean. You know you know Jesus. He denied him three times. The cock crowed. He looked at Jesus, and he realized that he did what he said he would never do, which was betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And he runs away in tears. Meanwhile, the soldiers begin to beat Jesus and, and put blindfolds on him and mock him. They say to him, prophesy, who is it that, that's hitting on you? You used to do these great miracles, now save yourself. They said to Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Jesus says to them, you won't admit it to be true, but I tell you this, 
in the future you will see the Son of Man coming on clouds in glory. And they said, what further evidence do we need of this man? Crucify him. So the Jews convict him. They send him off to Pontius Pilate, who could have him crucified. Pilate receives him at his courtroom. He questions him, and he finds nothing in him that's worthy of death. After, after questioning him all night long, he finds him to be innocent. He tells the Jews as such, but guess what? I'll send him over to Herod. Herod has jurisdiction in Galilee, which is where Jesus comes. I'll send him over to Herod. Herod can take a look at him and see if there's some wickedness in him. And Herod does the same. He um, sets up court, asks questions, finds that he is innocent. He mocks him, though. He heard of this Jesus, wanted to see some miracles, and Jesus wasn't in that kind of a frame of mind to, to be um, uh, humoring Herod at this point. But at the end, he decides that he's an innocent man, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate goes before the Jews and says, listen, Herod has looked at I've examined him. This man is, is innocent. I'll just release him. And they say, no, we demand that this man be crucified. He says he is God. He is a blasphemer. He deserves to be crucified. He relents ultimately. And the soldiers take him away. They nail him to a cross and hands outstretched, feet on a wooden block next to two other significant real criminals. And what's very interesting is soon after he's nailed, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So we serve a king that unlike other kings who will go out to battle to fight against the enemy, they will go out to save their own kingdom. This king goes out to save his enemies. This is a wonderful, what king would die for his enemies? Some would die for their friends. Some might die for their neighbors. But this king tries to save his, his deepest foes, his enemies. So he prays while he's nailed on the cross. Ask God to forgive them because they know not what they're doing. And meanwhile, the people are heaping more and more insults on him. Even those at his right and his left, criminals, guilty of the crimes that they've been charged with. One begins to assail him and the other defends him. He says, you know what? You and I, we are guilty of the sins, but this man has done no wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus do? He forgives him right on the spot. So while he is suffocating to death, while he is enduring infinite pain and shame, the God-man, the one who was fully man and fully God, is taking the penalty of the sins of the world on himself so that his enemies and his friends, the, the, the eleven, could be saved. After Jesus gets near the end of his time, the scripture says about 3 p.m., he turns to the Father and says, into your hands I commit my spirit. The whole time, grace is on his lips while he's enduring the shame and punishment. This is the kind of king that Psalms 2 is talking about. He's not a domineering king who cares little for his subjects. He's not a king that takes advantage of us. 
He's a king that nurtures us and prepares a place for us in eternity. Here's a king that provides blessing for you now and blessing in the future. I, I can't imagine serving any other king. So at the end in Psalm 2, the scripture says this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your own way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The invitation is urgent. There is nothing else that God has left other than his son, Jesus Christ, in order to usher us in into his kingdom. There is no, no other salvation besides him, no other atonement besides Jesus Christ. And so that is why the father is angry, because if we will not serve this son, the only expectation for us is God's certain wrath. God has better things in store for us that we would seek his shelter and love. We should all honor the son. We should worship him. We should adore him. That's the least that we can do. Dear Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who is both God and man, the one who is the son of eternally who with the Father and with the Holy Spirit reigns as God forever. This, this God, Jesus Christ, his compassion is beyond our comprehension. Father, we know that there are some who will fight for their kingdoms, but not, not any that I have ever heard that will fight for their enemies to draw them into right relationship with you, Lord. And so I pray this day that there, though there may be skeptics and moralists, Lord, that they will see their need for a, a generous and gentle Savior who has power to save and authority to judge. Now bless your people today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.